This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to the winner. It's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I am here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hello. And with Rebecca Ford. Hello. We are recording at the beginning of what feels like a very auspicious week. The WGA has reached a tentative deal with the AMPTP, which means we think that the WGA strike is about to end and hopefully the SAG after strike will follow right after that. So we'll talk about what happens with the strikes over. We're also going to dig into some of the uh, category shakeups that have happened. That always happens this time of year. Um, and some of the international feature options, uh, along with the not, not quite a scandal, but maybe one of the juicier submission stories we've had so far this year. Um, but let's start with the strike. Uh, on Sunday night, the WJ announced they had reached a tentative deal. Then it was the Yom Kippur holiday, so nothing has really come out about it yet. Probably by the time you hear this, we'll know a lot more about what that deal actually entails. And if we are right to be optimistic, that it will be ratified by the membership. Um, but Rebecca and David, I think you guys have already been in touch with reps yesterday. There's a, there's a lot more optimism uh, today than there was a week ago, I imagine. Yeah, I think uh, I think everyone's feeling hopeful about this. Obviously, there's a few more steps to go um, for everything to be official. The writers cannot, they're not picketing at this moment, but they are not able to participate in the things that affect our coverage most yet, including, you know, interviews and panels. But if this locks up, we could um, be hearing from writers very, very soon. Yeah. And and I think the feeling is that um, a lot of the deal points that the writers were really focused on, really dedicated to working out and, and holding strong until those were worked out, um, have overlap with SAG. And so the hope and expectation is that as long as the deal is what everyone seems to be saying it is so far in broad strokes, um, that there's a path there for SAG to figure something out with the studios a little bit more quickly than I think we were fearing um, before this latest development about a week ago. So there is hope. And I think the next step is just for everyone most specifically in this case SAG, to see what is exactly in that deal and how they can use that to move forward. Yeah. And logistically, you know, ratification takes a couple of weeks. They have to send it out to the full membership to vote. But from my understanding, they can get permission from the guild to go back to work even as that ratification takes place, right? I believe so. Yep. 
Okay. So, yeah. So we might be able to, like, do an interview with somebody next week with a writer. Like, I, you know, the, the, it, it feels like people are kind of, like, really getting in gear. Like, even though the official process takes a few weeks, like, it's going to be much sooner than that when we see uh, people somewhat getting back to work. Yeah. A lot of the people we've been dealing with this season are writer-directors, and mm-hmm. they've had a tough time figuring out how they can talk about their movie, what they can say, in a few cases, whether they can participate. Um, and so the immediate impact in terms of that, I think, will be that they'll feel a lot more comfortable just talking about their movies without feeling like they have to take a step back when they get into the writing part and things like that uh, and just be able to be more holistic. I know we've both had that experience, I think, in the last few months where you're in the middle of an interview and the writer director goes, I think I have to stop talking about the writing. And you're like, this is so strange. Uh, so that that alone will be, I think, a lot more fun to because I, I think talking about writing is like one of my favorite parts of this job. So I think we're all looking forward to that getting a little bit back to normal. Yeah. Bradley Cooper's in the contact space pod saying, I'm okay to go. I'm okay to go. And it's like, nope, you're you're also an actor. You you can't. So, yeah, I mean, it's all guesswork at this point. But I think when we were talking yesterday amongst ourselves, like we were maybe saying, hey, by mid-October, by late October, this could be over. Or was that more optimistic? When do we think, based on things going as well as we think they will, when could SAG be back to work? I think it depends how long they take to get back in the room, you know, after yeah. negotiating with the WGA. Um, we don't know the answer for that. Maybe maybe we got to bring Natalie Jarvey on here. <laughs> yes, we'll probably have Natalie come in uh, once we even know what's in the deal. We're yeah, really flying yeah. blind at this point. But, but they can't start production on anything until the actors can come, even, sure. you know, having the writers here. So that feels like there is going to be a sense of urgency. But we until they're in the room, with SAG after we don't really know uh, how long that's going to take, but I, I also am starting to feel optimistic. I mean, we can talk about the calendar, but January had been the rumor, and I think that um, is not what's going to happen. It's going to be much sooner than that. Yeah, yeah. We've lost a season of broadcast television. Yeah, and who knows how that all pushes movie and TV wise into the spring. Um, obviously, we have studios moving titles like Dune. For promotional reasons, yes, but I think also to fill out the calendar <laughs> next mm-hmm. year. Um, so we'll see. I think we're going to still feel the the impacts of this for a long time. But I was beginning to think, like, are we not going to have anything until, like, next summer? Yeah. And now at least there is a glimmer of hope that there will be content <laughs> made between now and March, basically. Yeah, I was also thinking about all the 2007, 2008 projects. Like there was this infamous Transformers movie that they like went ahead and made without a script, finished script, mm-hmm. and it just was a debacle. And we don't know what those are going to be yet. <laughs> like there are some projects that were mm-hmm. continued in production, and hopefully they all turn out well. But I think it will be several years of us being like, oh yeah, the strike, it, it messed that up. I mean, same as honestly, same as COVID. Like it, the the effect lasts for a long time. Katie, are you implying that the pre- other Transformers films had a script? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, someone had to write in uh, John Turturro's baffled lines looking at those robots. And, and Francis McDormand. Sp- she held her own in those movies, I would say. <laughs> um, Rebecca, you mentioned the calendar. Um, so, yeah, what's on the horizon? Like, what might what events might be uh, saved by this development? Well, I think, you know, if we look towards October, I think we'd be with the actors. We'd be a little optimistic to assume they'd be back in time and able to book their travel and and attend. But we have this like 
series of local film festivals um, that, you know, kick off. New York is happening now, but then we have Mill Valley, London Film Festival, Hamptons, Middleburg, Savannah that all kind of go through October. So is there a way that possibly by the time Savannah happens in late October, actors could attend? I don't know. Maybe that's possible. Um, David, you'll be there, right? You can uh, be there to pop the champagne. Yeah, there will be. I think there's, yeah, I think Rebecca's right. There will be a lot of eyes on those little festivals. Uh, I'll be in Savannah, um, but it could be (laughs) time to whichever one uh, happens to uh, start just as the strike ends, which could be true for any number of these festivals, because even through November, you've got these movies going everywhere, and whoever can go with those movies to go everywhere. Um, and we talked about how maybe at the very beginning of all this, there was some hope that New York could be that festival. It obviously will not be, but it's coming, so we'll see. Yeah, I, I, I'm really looking at AFI Fest. It's at the end of October, October mm-hmm. 25th. And, um, you know, it's in L.A., so obviously for a lot of talent, that's not a, a hard travel issue. So I wonder if it's possibly done. If, if AFI has some years is really, really big. We were just recently talking about the American Sniper slash Selma year, which was a really big year for them. And uh, it could be huge if they're the first one to get the actors back. I think I've seen that George C. Wolfe is getting a couple tribute awards at some of these various um, festivals as a director of Rustin who is able to promote it. And I'm just imagining Colma Domingo, like, by the phone, like, waiting to be able to go <laughs> join him and promote Rustin. Like, you know, there's, like, there's some actors who are like, just let me get out there. Like, it, their opportunity, it, you know, the moment is there. You want them to jump back on the circuit. Yeah. I, I mean, the the other one that's really interesting is coming very soon is the Academy Gala on October 14th. And that actors are going to apparently it's because it's a it's it's a fundraiser for the Academy Museum. It's not technically a awards campaign <laughs> event, <laughs> so um, they can attend. And from what I've heard, it is going to be very star studded. But um, New York Times just had an article today about how the executives of the struck companies will not be there. So that's like the oh. one interesting twist, I guess, uh, on that event this year. It's like uh, having divorced parents at a wedding where you have to choose which one's going to come. I don't want to go to a party and David Zaslav's not there. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not, that's not a party then. Heroic David Zaslav stepped aside so his famous uh, employees could actually <laughs> attend. <laughs> I had a friend ask me if, like, the Emmys would move back up now that, you know, it seems like if you had them in November, actors could actually come. I can't imagine that happening, like, partly because football is the reason that it was delayed in the first place. So we're kind of stuck with the January awards glut, it seems. But now they don't have to get rescheduled again, which was maybe the nightmare scenario we were imagining. Yeah, um, the Television Academy actually wanted the Emmys to move to November. That was the reporting that came out of that. But the broadcaster, Fox, wanted January because of football and general calendar reasons. I think that probably they're probably not wrong that people are in more of an awardsy mind in January than November. And so maybe it's like, may as well go where everyone else is going and people will watch everything. I don't know how they think about these things. But it, it does seem like it would be way too risky to move it. I mean, yeah. we haven't even heard anything from SAG yet. So who knows? Yeah. There's I do. no way that, that the Emmys are less popular than football, though, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast, you certainly agree. Only when they're on Fox. But <laughs> when CBS has them, whew, watch out, Broncos. 
I do wonder about the uh, push and pull that's going to happen between productions gearing back up in these award shows. You know, if you're like, if you've got Emma Stone attached to your movie, but she has to go to the Critics' Choice Awards and you can't start production in Romania, or you know, just, there's going to be such a land grab for these people's time. Like, I assume that the award shows will be able to get the people that they need. You know, sometimes these contenders have their schedule blocked off for award season entirely, but I, I, I bet it's going to be trickier than it usually is. I remember that happening the year the production yep. started after COVID and hearing from awards reps who were like, we can't get anyone here. They're all shooting. And it was a real issue for the season. Well, that was so. when they had like quarantine. Like if they came to L.A., they'd have to be there for two weeks. Like it was a real mess. It was back a whole then. thing. Yeah. But I could see that happening again with the need for everyone to get back into production as soon as possible. Yeah. It's going to be fun to have actors who aren't sick of talking about their projects. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> this is all going to be new. It's going to be exciting for everybody. Or maybe they enjoyed the the quiet so much. They'll be like, oh, I didn't want to see you people I actually again. don't talk about my art anymore, so I'm sorry. <laughs> we talked last week about past lives maybe getting a real boost by having an interim agreement. It's, you know, one of a handful of projects that have them already. Do we think that that advantage is going to go away because the strike is maybe ending sooner than we thought? Or have they gotten, you know, a couple of valuable weeks ahead of the competition? I feel like the strike, if it were to end soon, it probably would be another month, just given that they have to look at the deal, they have to go back in the room. Like, I, I don't know that we're talking about a matter of weeks necessarily. Yeah. And that's really valuable. I think that by the time the SAG strike ends, whether it is, you know, end of October, or just before Thanksgiving, which probably is going to be like a soft target, you know, that's really valuable time for past lives to get back in the conversation because just a general hurdle for that movie is it doesn't, it's not coming out, you know, later. It's, it's in that everything everywhere all at once position, which uh, as Rebecca and I saw every day, basically <laughs> uh, benefited tremendously from the cast getting out there from people falling in love with them. Uh, and that is huge, especially when the movie doesn't have a kind of festival trajectory to be able to follow. So yeah, it's a huge benefit for it uh, as long as it's one of the only movies out there. It is incredibly candy that they held the um, rental release until like this week so that it's like popping back up out there. Strategy is good over there. They they know how to do this. I have this feeling of like Sandra Hewler like at some party and then like other actors show up and she's like, oh, hello. <laughs> I've been here a long time. Who are you again? Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the meet the parents thing where he wakes up late and they're already eating breakfast and he's like, you should have woken me up. And Sandra Hewler is just like there. Except yeah. in this case, it's Emma Stone and yeah. Evan. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. 
with exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Ferrian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Um, before we get into some of those categories and Oscar submissions we were talking about, um, David, you mentioned New York Film Festival earlier kicking off this week. We should um, mention there's a lot of really huge titles that are going to be there and some stuff that we might see bouncing back. I think we talked about Maestro last week. Um, Richard, you'll be on the ground in Lincoln Center. What tough assignment you've got there. Um, what else do you think is really going to pop at New York Film Festival? Well, we mentioned Maestro. Uh, that'll be big, I think. Um, the May December trailer just dropped as we record this. Um, pull quote from somebody. Yeah, we some might idiot know. we work mm-hmm. with. Um, <laughs> they actually did pick a, a, a quote that I'm like fine with because normally you're like, oh god, that's cringy <laughs> out of context. But um, in this case, I'm fine with it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that like beyond the obvious big titles like May December and Ferrari and Maestro I think that like the New York Film Festival is a great space for and we'll talk about you know the international stuff later like for those movies to really like you know they've been can certified and now New York Film Festival I feel like is the second major stop for those movies to kind of shore up their their run so there's a ton that I'm excited to see that I've missed at previous festivals like Fallen Leaves and um yeah the Vin Vendors film and Green Border, the Agnieszka Holland film that won a big award at Venice. Like I'm looking forward to those, but I think that really like, you know, again, to reiterate what we've already said, huge for Maestro. And I also think May December, which already had a huge can is going to kind of reannounce itself um, in a big way. Uh, And I'm very excited for people to hopefully enjoy the movie. um, And I'm bracing myself for some round of discourse about that movie's tricky subject matter. Um, It's kind of made for it, though, right? Like, there's no way they're not expecting it on that one. Well, and the trailer, I think, anticipates it. You know, they like have a quote, I think, from New York Magazine that's like, it's it's a very uncomfortable watch, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and um, good. Like, they should they should lead with that, I guess, you know, because that's sort of part of the point of the movie. David and Rebecca, you'll be watching from afar. What have you got your eye on? To show myself a little bit on this podcast, two of my favorite movies of the year, I think, are having very big moments here. One is May-December, which feels like a real unknown quantity this award season. You know, the performances are amazing from Oscar winners to a real discovery like Charles Melton. I think it's such an accomplished movie from Todd Haynes, who's never had a movie nominated for Best Picture or Best Director. We have a profile of Christine Vachon, who's also never been Oscar nominated up uh, time to this. Um, And this hopefully will kickstart some sort of movement for him and for this movie, because it's a real achievement. And it's also wildly funny and entertaining. And I think it'll play well. I'm sure there are some nerves inside Netflix because their New York premiere opening premiere last year was White Noise, and that ended up being quite the dud for them. Um, But there are many reasons to think that this will go differently than that. Um, And the other is All of Us Strangers, which was, you know, one of the best-reviewed movies out of Telluride. Uh, I heard from some people who saw, uh, came out of a press screening, who said it played very, very well for New York. And that that's another movie where you could see it's gaining a foothold in the Oscar race in a few places, especially for Andrew Scott, uh, even though Best Actor is really competitive. But it's it's a small, intimate movie. It's an Andrew Haig movie. So it's, it remains a question mark as to how much of an Oscar player it can be, even if it is a critic's movie and a movie that, you know, a subset of its audience really passionately loves. So those those are the two that I'm watching. But like Richard said, there's a lot of titles here that 
It's it's a great lineup. I'm I'm very jealous I'm not there. Um, a friend of mine who's spending some time in LA went to a screening of all of the strangers out there. And he texted me. He was like, every gay person I've ever heard of from L.A. is at the screening. <laughs> <laughs> so they were like going hard on a certain demographic for that movie. Um, but yeah, I think that New York Film Festival will be big for that as well. Um, because, you know, Telluride is a pretty cloistered environment. It's hard to get to. It's expensive to be at. New York City is not cheap, but like it opens its doors to, I think, a slightly wider audience. And um, I'm really curious to see how that movie is greeted. I'm also curious um, how both... Two Venice debuts that I think fared pretty well there, um, Priscilla and Ferrari. Priscilla, yeah, yeah that's do big one. with more audiences seeing them. Mm-hmm. I, I think they're to me they're both sort of on the bubble when it comes to what their award season trajectories look like. So, I think super strong reactions there could really help both of them. Or if it goes the other way, it could also very much affect what the rest of the season looks like for them. So, you know, I, I think Venice is one kind of audience, and I'm curious to see what how they both do with a different sort of audience. My hunch is that at least one of those movies will unfortunately kind of fall back to earth. Like, mm. I, I think that um, as much as we try to be cognizant of, like, festival bias and festival fever, like, it does happen. And I'm kind of wondering if, like, either Ferrari or Priscilla people will be like, what were those Venice people talking about? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. like this is fine, you know? Um, I've already heard some whispers from people who've seen one of those movies after Venice being like, I, I think everyone at that festival was kind of on something because I don't I don't see it, you know? Um, I won't say which one, but like those movies, I think are really still very much on a bubble in terms of um, our awardsy purposes. Rebecca and I may have gone to a screening of one of those movies where that was very much the overall sentiment. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I mean, I think to that point, Maestro is in a pretty good position of weirdly being like less buzzy than Priscilla coming out of Venice. And I think will play better to a broader audience from what I understand. So not playing at the New York Film Festival, but I think on an interesting like parallel buzz path is Killers of the Flower Moon, another can title. We have been kind of wondering what its second life might be. There's this big Martin Scorsese profile in GQ. Uh, and then Lily Gladstone making waves by submitting herself in or, you know, someone decided to submit her in lead actress for Killers of the Flower Moon. It is uh, almost identical timing to when Michelle Williams went lead for The Fablemans, which is something we uh, hemmed and hawed over forever. Mm-hmm. She wound up getting a nomination and not winning, which I think... Even at that point, we kind of knew it would be tough for her to win. Um, Best Actress is interesting this year and different in a way that I think it's a harder path for her. I kind of think she could have just easily won in Supporting Actress. But again, like the similar to Michelle Williams, like it is a statement of the purpose of the movie for her to go and lead. And I kind of can't deny them. Like maybe it's the right move. Even if she like loses out on an easy win, maybe it's the right decision. Or am I crazy too? Well... I do think that I understand the sort of idea behind running her in lead to sort of shore up her place in that movie. Mm-hmm. But if they wanted that, they could have made the movie different, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, to be honest, like, like, I think that was a gripe that, that Rebecca and I who've seen the movie, like, we're like, you know, or, or well, I'll, I'll speak for myself, at least like the movie spends a lot of time with the bad guys. And um, there there are sort of narrative reasons why Lily Gladstone's character is sidelined. I mean, she's ailing for a lot of the movie. She's bedridden for a lot of the movie. But like, I, I like the movie, but I think it it could have spent more time on on the people who are being victimized rather than victimizers. 
Um, and that would have made a better case for Lily Gladstone running in lead. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's, it's their decision. And I think that it, there is absolutely a case to be made that she is a lead performer of that movie. Um, but I think it, yeah, it, it makes the hill a lot steeper for her, which is too bad. I, I have a question about this. If anybody knows, Rebecca, you might know. Was she able to even communicate with Paramount and Apple about her placement? You know, because mm. because they're on strike. Oh, right. You know, from what we understand, they're not even supposed to be communicating with their publicists about these movies. So I'm wondering, I mean, I'm sure she obviously knew and supported the decision, but it, it feels like a move that is better for the movie than mm-hmm. for her overall, um, mm, which is not to say she's not supportive of it, but it does position the movie in a way where it, you know, it's it fits the narrative it's trying to sell in a really compelling way. I just think that I would personally argue it's a supporting performance given the structure of the movie. And I I wonder how – I just wonder about the optics of her in that race where – I'm just trying not to spoil anything. But, you know, there's there are stretches of the film where she is – you see her, but she's not an active participant in the story. I mean, we talked about the book on the podcast. Like, you know, I don't think you're spoiling too much. Um, and, and, and there's a real, con- there's, it's, there's a difference between like Michelle Williams, every time she's in the Fablemans, and by the way, I also think she was supporting, but every time she's in the Fablemans, she is this larger than life presence. She, you can feel the movie star energy walking on the screen. In this movie, I, I do think there's going to be a real contrast between the role that she plays in the story, particularly its back half and like the active quality of Emma Stone in Poor Things or Sandra Huller in Anatomy of a Fall or Annette Bening in Nyad, where they are so, so dominant from beginning to end in their movies. Um, And that's not to say a lead performance has to be that, but there is something about the direction that her character takes in the story that I think will be tough to stand up against those other performances, um, just narratively. Well... I don't know if she could talk to the studios, but I am picturing those agents that represent her being on the phone <laughs> with the studios quite often um, to clear this all up. But I, yeah, I, I agree. It feels like it's the right messaging to do for the film's prospects and best picture and, and, and other things like that. But I, I would be really bummed if she doesn't get nominated because of this choice, because I think it is a really strong performance Um that, you know, there is a part of the film, as we're all sort of alluding to, that she's not in and and I missed her when it was that part of the movie because she is, you know, so incredible to watch. So I know that they want the message to be that the Native American story is front and center here. But like Richard is saying, there was choices made on the way this movie is told that I don't know if that's the case. So, yeah, it's an interesting choice. I, I, I hope that she doesn't get lost in in the race because of it. Yeah, you just, you just wouldn't want her to be kind of thrown into that sort of narrative that like they were originally going to make the movie a very different way. And then they consulted with the Osage Nation and other um, Native groups. And they were like, OK, we're going to realign how we tell the story. And like mm-hmm. the, it's a very different movie, apparently, than it was supposed to be originally. Um, mm-hmm. And they think that they did improve. They moved certain characters like Lily Gladstones to the foreground as much as they did. But like it's maybe not still enough. And I think that like using a lead you know submission as kind of further proof of their awareness of who the story is actually about is all well and good but like it's not exactly textually supported in the movie i would argue it is about her 
in a way that isn't necessarily represented by screen time. Like she is not the most she is the person that things are happening to, which is a really tough passive position in the story. And that's the entire point of the story is that you had this entire group of people who were kind of systematically taken advantage of and not that they didn't fight back. And you she is, you know, actively fighting back in many ways and with the extent of power that she has. But I think her presence is part of the story. Even I think as David was saying, even when she's not like physically active in the rooms and all of this. And that makes the lead designation make more sense to me, Um, more so than like Felicity Jones in The Theory of Everything, who, don't forget, was a lead actress nominee. And that movie was not about her in any real way. I think Killers of the Flower Moon is much more about Lily Gladstone's character uh, than that one. So if you want that as a point of comparison, I also think she'll get nominated anyway. It's, you know, I guess maybe the next step of this. I hope so. I, I think she will get in, and I think that the narrative will suit her to that end. I, I just don't know that – you know, a lot of people right now are thinking she can win and lead. And I, I wonder once everyone has seen the movie who is interested in predicting these things, if there will be a question as to just whether there's enough there. She gives a beautiful performance in this movie and absolutely deserves to be in the conversation. But there is just a a difference between what a true star turn can be – uh, and what this is, where Leo DiCaprio has the true star turn. I mean, that's Richard's point. That is just the reality of this movie. Yeah. And I say that as, I think, the biggest fan of this movie on this podcast. I love this movie. Um, and I, I, I love the way that they unfold the relationship between those two characters. But it is more centered on DiCaprio than her. So we'll see. But I I definitely admire the decision. Uh, I don't begrudge them for it at all. I think it does suit the movie overall. I just don't know that it will, in the end, suit her candidacy specifically. Well, who's going to win supporting actress now, guys? Divine Joy Randolph. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it, it that does open the path for Divine Joy Randolph in a big way. Yeah, um, because I think that, like, after the festivals, it was like, okay, well, Lily probably is ahead of the pack. Mm-hmm. Um, but Divine is right behind her. And now... I don't know. I mean, she's so good in the holdovers and it's a really like, and that is a true supporting role. You know, there's no category fraud there at all. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And you know, so I I think that that's a a strong contender right there. What's what's funny about that category is it really could go in that direction or it could go in like a Jodie Foster direction and could be a legend victory lap because Mm -hmm. she's really good at Naya Mm -hmm. and people are going to really, people are going to love that performance. Yeah. And And like more, more so than Benning even, you know? Yeah. That she's she's the heart of the movie. Yeah, yeah, she's the heart of the movie. Yeah, and she's like our eyes through it. Like she, like Jodie Foster is kind of the lead of that movie in a weird way. Um, in in that we spend more time because like poor Nat Benning is thrashing away in the water, <laughs> and we're on the boat with Jodie, and it's like okay, like I guess Jodie's our friend in this movie, not 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 Nyad. Um, and that that counts for a lot. Like I could see a a very sad award season where like Jodie Foster keeps picking up things and Annette Bening's just standing there being like, did you not see that I was in the fucking water? Like, <laughs> the jellyfish I was really, really in the water, guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a very interesting pair of potential first time nominees in this category, Dave Van Joyen Randolph and Emily Blunt, um, who I think mm. most people would say has a pretty good chance now. If, yes. You know, Oppenheimer really, I think to me, looks like a more and more sure thing the longer we go. Um, and that role is not at all what I would want Emily Blunt to get her first nomination. She's very good in the movie, but like, you know, I think she's been fascinating in many more things. Um, but she and Dave and Joy Randolph have had very different careers and have been in the industry longer. But for them both to be first time nominees, I think we'd both be thrilled. Total. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, she should have Blunt should have been nominated for Edge of Tomorrow slash Live Die Repeat, whatever you want to call that movie. Yeah, she's so good. She's, I mean, she's been great in a lot of things, but like, I would have given her nomination for Mary Poppins. Sue me. Um, <laughs> uh, same. Yeah. Thank you. Same. <laughs> she's really good in that movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that like watching Oppenheimer this summer, it was like, oh, they gave her one big scene where like that's enough, you know, mm-hmm. and um, that movie has a lot of goodwill. It's made a lot of people a lot of money. Um, it's still being talked about months later. Uh, yeah, still she playing in strong. theaters could cross a billion worldwide mm-hmm. still. Well, also, if this does become like an everything everywhere groundswell, which won three acting Oscars, mm-hmm. you have Robert Downey Jr., who is in the most likely position, Killian Murphy, who is, you know, very possible. And then she probably would be the third. So uh, I, I just I don't know. Three I, as, acting as a, Oscars for Oppenheimer. That I, that is if, interesting. <laughs> if you're saying, yeah, this is becoming that thing, which it could be. Look, I, I love Emily Blunt. She nails that big scene. I personally think that the two performances we mentioned in this category are a little bit richer and more well-rounded, mainly because of the way they're written, but also the, the what the actors get to do in them. Uh, so I don't know if this is what I want Emily Blunt to win her Oscar for, but I do agree that it's it's very possible and she's excellent in the movie, so I wouldn't uh, wouldn't be too upset about it, but. I do hear Rebecca slowly going insane if this is Emily <laughs> Blunt's Oscar. <laughs> it's okay. We, we hear you. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, to wrap it up, I think we'll have many more opportunities to talk about the international feature category. Uh, seven countries are still making their submissions, but there have already been some pretty interesting decisions. Um, Rebecca, you wrote for us about the a true shocker, uh, at least in our corner of the world, um, that France submitted The Taste of Things, formerly called The Pot au Feu. I think that's how you say it, um, over Anatomy of a Fall, which kind of was the Palme d'Or winner. I think many of us thought it might be submitted, but I think we all kind of saw this potential coming. Um, Why did it feel like such a big deal? Well, it just feels like um, Anatomy of a Fall has that sort of huge international feature trajectory this year that we've seen with things like Parasite or Driving My Car, where it's the film that people feel like may contend in several other categories, best picture, best actress for Sandra Huller. So it just felt like, well, if you're France, you're going to pick the one that's probably going to get you a win there. Um, but, I, you know, I think David pointed this out when we were we were all <laughs> chatting about this as it was announced that, like, this is actually a pretty smart move for France because I, mm-hmm. The Taste of Things is very well reviewed. Is It's a very strong film on its own. And so... It'll probably still get nominated and really contend for the international feature. So France could, you know, have a win there while also Anatomy of a Fall will probably get nominated in other categories. So it's sort of the best of both worlds um, in that way. But I I think we had all sort of assumed they would take the easy um, front runner. Uh, But I think it's actually a a smart choice um, because, you know, I think... I see that film being nominated. I, it will be competing against uh, Zone of Interest in this category now. So, you know, that's a, it's a steep hill to cl- and several other strong contenders. But um, I think it's a almost a lock for a nomination anyway. 
I was not shocked by this. <laughs> David was just waiting I, for this. this been no, France did this, what, last year with Titan, too? Are you Two implying that the French government was happier with <laughs> I, a glorious you, sensual appreciation you. of its food culture instead of like a weird kind of like dyspeptic look at its legal system? That's almost half in English. Like, I mean, it's half in English. Like it makes total sense that they're like, no, no, please. Like this is the France we want to put out mm-hmm. to the world. Not this murder thing or whatever, you know, accidental death thing. Yeah, I, I think it's being blown up a little bit. Um and it really, from what I can tell, it's already working in Anatomy of a Fall's favor mm-hmm. because you are sensing that momentum behind it as don't forget about this. This movie should be a best picture contender. It's something Neon is definitely pushing, but it's also something that supporters of the movie um, are, are already trumpeting. So I, I don't think it hurts that movie too much. And yeah, the taste of things makes very, very, makes a lot of sense as a national pick. It is lovely and fairly straightforward it's and also playing beautiful. a new york film festival right it's got it's momentum coming yeah it has ifc behind it so it's not like you know and i know does have neon but this is also a strong company with it here in the u.s it's just a really good movie and it, it makes sense that they would want to push that here because without it it would have no real shot at, at last living a long life this fall here so i'm not bothered by it I, I do think it probably opens up the conversation for the win a little bit more because, you know, once the Academy opens things up after the nominations phase, it does tend to be like the default overall contender that wins this category. And you could argue that the zone of interest is now going to play that role, but I, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, yeah. So good for France. I'm not, I, there are people who are upset about this. I am definitely not one of them because Unfortunately, they're playing in a strange academy system, and this is the kind of thing you have to do. I do wonder if this will give an edge to my beloved Perfect Days, which I saw in I Toronto, think it will. which is Japan submission again playing at New York Film Festival. Um, and Neon I mean, has that, right? Neon has mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So uh, now their attentions are not uh, divided in at that least category. Not in, in that category, yeah. yeah. Although, do they have a third one? No, because they. Um, it was La Chimera, La Chimera but it, it, Italy did not submitted. pick that. Yeah. And then the um, the other contender I saw at TIFF, which I just wanted to shout out, which is Australia's, it has an international feature in Shada, um, which is uh, about per- Iranian immigrants living in Australia, and it's in part Persian and English, which is really good. Uh, it has the actress from Holy Spider, for those of you who have been following this category for years. I think another international title to keep an eye on, just from people I talk to at, at Toronto especially, um, is The Monk and the Gun from Bhutan. Mm-hmm. Um, that director had uh, a yak in the classroom nominated a, just a couple years ago. And I talked to people who were at Telluride when we were all at Toronto. And they were, and I was like, what, what are the things you liked from Telluride that aren't playing here that I haven't seen? And most of them mentioned The Monk and the Gun. So that's, mm. that's an interesting you know, thing to consider, uh, as is Teacher's Lounge, which like, I'm biased because I sat at that table at the Sony dinner in Toronto, but like that's a great movie. People love. I haven't it's seen a great it yet, movie. People love it, and um, I don't know. I haven't seen it, so is it a crowd pleaser? But it, whatever it is, it seems like to go over very well with audiences. It's not like inaccessible. It kind of takes the anatomy of a false slot as like a really well constructed thriller that plays really effectively in ambiguity and uh, a, a really rigorous character study. So I think it's really well positioned now that that movie is not in the race because it, it has its own lane to itself and it's really good. Um, 
Yeah, that that it's going to be interesting if if Shada and Zone of Interest both get nominated because you'll have Australia and United Kingdom represented yeah. in this category. Ireland got um, in for the first time last year, so yeah, come on, so English speaking countries. It does, it does happen, and there's a lot of enthusiasm behind the Quiet Girl, that Irish film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's nice to see that. It should open up a little bit. I mean, Zone of Interest is it is a British movie, but it is very much a German movie as mm-hmm. well, and. Um, I think that how this category will, you know, be judged is just how much of an awards contender zone of interest is, because it's not the audience-friendly pick in the way that Perfect Days or Taste of Things or Teacher's Lounge is. But it is the art house pick for sure. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. I'm at Twitter at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best description of Sally Hawkins' best actress campaign for The Shape of Water goes to David Canfield. I was really in the water, guys. <laughs> I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.